Thanks, Rob. Uh, you can have a seat. Uh, good morning again. My name is Jacob Smith. As Zach said, I'm our, uh, one of our college pastors here at Grace Bible Church here at our Anderson campus. And man, it is always just a joy and a privilege for me to come over and be with you guys, to hop across the street uh, while my little college baby birds are, I guess, I think of them as out of the nest, but they're probably, they're actually in the nest right now. I'm the Sky, I guess. But anyway, they, uh, they're gone. And that's the point. And uh, so I get to be here with you. Uh, and I am so excited. So uh, uh, really just pumped about this new year, right? 2018 is here. It's happening. We're like a week in. So the warranty is over. Sorry about that. Uh, but you have uh, just maybe dreams and expectations and, and, and goals. Man, I, I know a lot of us, we hit these new years. And we're like, yeah, this is it. Like, this is, this is the new year. New year, new you, right? This is, this is going to be it. I'm going to go, I'm going to join that gym, or I'm going to do those things, or I'm going to work in that project, or I'm going to have these different goals and expectations that I'm going to set for myself or for other people. And man, it is just an exciting time. And what I love seeing, especially is, man, as students are coming back, they are just ready to rock. They've got the energy, they've got the excitement. They're like, yeah, I'm going to take 8 a.m.s every day. Why not? Of course, I'll go to that class. They don't, but they think they will. And I'm like, oh, it's great. Like, good for you. And they just, they have these dreams and expectations. And, and you know, sometimes they, they don't meet those expectations and, and there's disappointment, right? The reality is that even that's for all of us. At some point, we all will have these expectations or these goals or these dreams or these desires, and they're not always met. And when that happens, right, when that expectation is missed, when it's not met, we're disappointed. Right? It happens to all of us. Mackenzie, do you think it's a, a little brother or a little sister you're getting? It's brother. A brother? And what do you want to name him? Tarzan. Tarzan. Yeah, I mean, we'll be able to see it bubble over. Oh, oh no! <laughs> what does that mean, Kenzie? It's a sister. It is a sister. Are you upset? Oh, buddy. <laughs> Sister, but you'll have a little sister. Boys are disgusting. <laughs> True. <laughs> Man, the reality is we all will face disappointment. Sometimes our siblings' genetic structure disappoints us, right? Some of us are still living in that, right? Like that's, that's still a disappointment. Sometimes there's circumstances in life that are outside of anyone's control and it will disappoint us. There's times where maybe other people, we have expectations for them and they will disappoint us. We will find ourselves even making decisions and choices and going down paths that we look back and we realize, man, I shouldn't have done those things. I shouldn't have said those things. I've disappointed myself in my own expectations. Man, many times we will find ourselves disappointed by unmet expectations, whether it's people, children, spouses, co-workers, whether it's circumstances, maybe it's, maybe it's our own performance. We think, man, I want this number on my salary or on my uh, grade sheet, and I don't have that number. And we will find ourselves disappointed over and over and over again. And yet what's really tragic is, is that many times when that unmet expectation, right, it's always going to be disappointing, but many times it can be absolutely crushing. It can be absolutely not just disappointing, it can be devastating because that person was where we were putting our hope. That, that, that grade, that, that's, that paycheck was where we were putting our confidence. And suddenly when this thing falls apart, when that person that we were relying on, that we were trusting, when that person gets sick, or they have an accident, 
and they're down for the counter. They're, they're out of our lives. Suddenly we find ourselves devastated because we were putting all of our hopes and dreams. Our identity maybe even was tied up in this idea or this number or this relationship. And when those things fall apart, when those expectations aren't met, suddenly we find ourselves crippled. We find ourselves devastated. And it's not the life, that's not the roller coaster up and down experience that God wants for his people. It's just not. In the book of Philippians, Paul is writing to a church inspired by the Spirit. The Apostle Paul is writing the letter of Philippians to the church in Philippi. And he's telling them about what their lives should be, about what it should look like, about what it should center on, and what they should focus on in their walks as followers of Jesus Christ. I mean, what does that look like day in, day out? And what we're going to see this morning is that in chapter 3 of Philippians, Paul is coming to this sort of central idea, this main point. And it's all about where is your hope? It's all about where is your confidence? It's all about, man, in life you're going to set expectations, you're going to have dreams, you're going to have goals. January 7th more than ever. And Paul says, you need to make sure that you're putting that hope, you're putting that confidence in the finished work of Christ. Rather than anything you can do or someone else can do, rather than anything that this world can provide, he says, that's where your ultimate hope and confidence and identity should be found. He's turning their focus to Jesus Christ, to his finished work, so that we can have the right perspective. Even when disappointment arrives, we can still praise our God. Because ultimately, that's why we're here. Right, Paul starts with that in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. He says, finally, and he's, he's not, the Greek term here isn't setting up, hey, this is the last thing I'm going to tell you when he says finally. But it's this idea of, hey, this is the central, this is the main thing I'm going to tell you. He says, finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write this again is no trouble to me. It's a safeguard for you. He says, I've said this before. I'm going to say it again. Rejoice in the Lord. Praise God. He says, that's the big idea. That's what it's all about. That's where your focus should be on who God is and what he's done. He says, rejoice in that. As a body, as a a group, as a community, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in who he is and what he's done. Right? Rejoice in these things. Worship him. That's why we start our services with worship, with singing songs. It's not the only way to praise God, but it's one of our main ways. It's one of these kind of standard ways that we begin Western Christian evangelical church services. We have singing together. And it's because God has hardwired us to let music even be this wonderful unifying element. When we sing together, there have been psychological studies that find that we actually find ourselves kind of just more in sync with the people around us. Whether it's in a church service or at a concert or in a choir, we will find ourselves kind of sublim- like not even realizing, subconsciously connecting more deeply with the people around us as we're all singing the same thing together. And the best part about that is that they found from a 2005 study, I love this, they say... Uh, in the article, that it can produce satisfying and therapeutic sensations, even when the sound produced by the vocal instrument is of mediocre quality. (laughs) The most kind, scientific way of saying, even if you are horrible at singing, you should still sing. Like, it's still good. It's still beneficial. Paul says, I want you to join together as a community in praising God. Why? Because choosing to praise him, choosing to praise, regardless of the circumstance, it will change your perspective. That's what Paul is about to get to. Choosing to praise will always change your perspective. It's what we see all throughout the Psalms. 
different authors and different life experiences and, and backgrounds that they will write over and over again. Psalm 42, for example, the psalmist says, why are you depressed? Oh, my soul, right? He's looking inward. He's self-reflective. He's not talking to people. He's not talking to an audience. He's talking to himself. He's just been, why am I depressed? Why am I upset? Why are you upset? My soul. Wait for God. For I will again give thanks to my God for his saving intervention. He says, man, I see the emotion. I see the storm inside of me. And I'm not just going to reject it, right? I'm not not just going to see that emotion and like dismiss it or disregard it. I see it. I acknowledge it. He says, but then I want to take control of it and I want to direct it. Right? The emotion that we feel is real, but it's not reliable. It's real, but it's not the end all be all. It's not the destination. We will have emotions that rise up, that swell up, sometimes wonderful, sometimes horrible. And what we see in scripture is this charge, this encouragement to acknowledge the field, to acknowledge the emotion, but then to grab a hold of it and direct it to what you know to be true. He says, I see the depression. I see the sadness, the sorrow in my heart, but I'm going to tell myself how I should feel. I'm going to direct myself to giving thanks to God. I'm going to choose to praise because I trust that in doing so, I will change my perspective. That God is faithful to come alongside, to comfort, to guide, to encourage, to direct, to illuminate, to show me, man, this is the path. I can trust that he's at work, that he's going to work all things for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purposes. I can trust what he says to be true. So I'm going to choose to praise him. Paul says you need this shift in perspective because there's going to be so much in this world, so many circumstances, so many people, so many moments that will tempt you to put your hope and faith and trust in other things. He says you need to choose to praise God, change your perspective into knowing that he is reliable, that he is faithful, because there's going to be other times in our world that this world is going to throw things at you that are going to pull you, they're going to tell you that you should be trusting either in yourself or in other people or in whatever this world can provide. For the church in Philippi, there was a certain group that Paul calls the dogs. He says, you need to beware of them. You need to beware of these evil workers, these people who are mutilating the flesh. He's calling out the specific group of people called the Judaizers. And this was a, a kind of a little subsection of uh, Jews back in the days of the early church who saw Jesus, heard Jesus, and were pretty much on board. Like they knew what Christ had said. They knew what he had taught, knew what he had done. And they're like, yeah, okay, we're, we're pretty much on board with these things that he said and did. Except there was one little piece that they didn't like. They didn't like that Jesus Christ said that he had come to fulfill the law. They didn't like that Jesus Christ said that it's, he is the way and the truth and the life. They said, yeah, he's part of it. But in order to really receive salvation, in order to have relationship with God, in order to, to have everlasting life, what they said is that you believe in Christ, sure, but also follow the law. Also become a Jew. Also place yourself under the authority of the Mosaic law. He said, you have to follow these rites and these commandments, these regulations. You have to live in these certain ways. In other words, they said, yeah, life is found by faith plus works. 
And they were this growing element in the early church where they're moving and they're talking with people and they're having these compelling arguments saying like, hey, look, Jesus was a Jew. Like you need to convert. Like you need to switch over into Judaism. And Paul is looking at this. He's watching this happen. And he says, it's a lie. It's a lie. He says, they are trying to put your trust in something other than Jesus Christ. They are putting their trust in their own ability to work. They're putting their trust in their own ability to align themselves. He's using this terminology of mutilating the flesh because one of their big things is that if you want to be a Christian, you have to become a Jew. And part of that is you have to undergo this rite of circumcision, this physical marking of being a person, a part of the community of God. And he says what they're doing is they're just missing the point. He says they're mutilators of the flesh. He says they're so far gone. They've, they've just completely... They've completely missed it. They've twisted the words of God. It says, man, you can't fall into that trap of putting your trust, your faith, your hope, your confidence in anything that you can do, in anything that you can perform, accomplishments that you can have. He says, man, that's just, it doesn't work like that. He says, we are the circumcision. In other words, he's saying, we are already by faith the community of God's people. The ones who worship by the Spirit of God, who exult in Christ Jesus, who do not rely on human credentials, though mine too are significant. He says, we don't worry about what we can do. We're not a people that have earned our place somehow through our own works. He says, and you know what? Even if, if it was that way, if you could earn your way, he says, man, yeah, I, I'd be in a really good spot, right? If someone thinks he has good reasons to put confidence in human credentials, I have more. He says, if there's someone out there that thinks he's done the best of the best, that he's kind of the top of the heap, cream of the crop, he says, man, I've been there. I've done that. I've lived for my own victory. And he says, and it just doesn't, it doesn't work. He says, we're not trusting in human credentials. We're trusting in what Christ has done. We're not trusting in what we can do. He says, and man, if we could, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm there. He says, I could, I could do that. In fact, he's about to list seven qualities. He's giving this holy number for this perfect resume he's about to, about to present. These seven qualities and characteristics that he had, four of which he was born with, that he was just privileged to have, just born into it. Three of which he worked for, three of which he earned. It wasn't privilege, it was performance. And he's going to, one by one, list out these reasons why he, of all people, should, in theory, trust in himself. Trust in his own abilities. Trust in his own accomplishments. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was from the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. In other words, he starts off saying, hey, I am just through and through Jewish. Right? He says, I mean, I was, I was born into this. I was circumcised on the eighth day. In other words, I was, brought into, I was born into this family. I was born into this community. I didn't convert later. My parents didn't like waffle. They didn't like, kind of, well, I don't know, try to make up their minds later in life. He says, no, right from the get-go, man, I was born into this. From the people of Israel. He says, man, I, I'm a Jew through and through, right from day one. It's something that people respect, right? People like to see that. Where maybe you have a child and you're like, you know what? Yeah, my baby's going to drool maroon and white. Better believe it, right? We will dress our children. I, I won't. Maybe you will. Dress your child. In this, just, hey, I'm going to mark them for who they are. An Aggie, they drew maroon and white, which is probably a medical issue. Like, you should see a doctor. But that's, that's something that we, we want to see that. We almost want to see that in our children. We want to see, yeah, I'm not crying. I'm practicing for midnight. Yeah, yeah, okay. 
I like it. It keeps me sane in the middle of the night to pretend that that's what's happening. Okay, okay, yeah. Yeah, my kid, you know what? Yeah, sorry about the spit up. Thought I saw a Longhorn fan. Oh, okay, yeah, all right. Got him, got him. Yeah, yeah. We want to bring our babies into these blood feuds we have, right, that are over. But, like, we, we want to see this in our kids. We want to see them. Yeah, day one, right? OG, man, they're, they're right, right from the get-go. They are part of this community. Paul says, I was born into this. He says, you can't mess with my heritage. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. This wonderful kind of special tribe. Great figures came from it. Uh, Benjamin was this, the tribe of Benjamin was the one tribe that when King David was being threatened by his son Absalom, the tribe of Benjamin was the one tribe that stuck with David. And everyone later on was like, yeah, that was a good move. Yeah, yeah, that was good. Absalom, uh, good job, Benjamin. I mean, they were this wonderful tribe that everyone, that they had even kept track of who their descendants were. A lot of them at this point, they were losing track of who was actually in what tribe. Benjamin was sticking to it. They had their genealogies. Paul knew where he was from. He knew what he was doing. He says, man, I was born into this. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. In other words, he's saying, man, I'm, I'm committed to this cause. I'm speaking the Hebrew language, right? It was, it was being lost at this time. People were terrified because people were stopping speaking and writing in Hebrew and they were trading over in, in favor of, of the common tongue of, of Greek and Aramaic. Man, they were, they were leaving Hebrew and so he's like, man, I'm, I'm committed to this, right? I've, I've got that. It's in my blood. It's who I am. We find out in Acts 22 that Paul studied under Gamaliel. Gamaliel. The elven lord of the north. With the, no, he, was a, he was a Pharisee, right? He was a Pharisee, this, this leading scholar of his day. And Paul was mentored by him, was taught by him. Paul says, man, I, I come from good stock. He says, I'm a part of this community. He says, not only did I start off on the right foot, he says, but then I lived according to the law as a Pharisee. I committed myself to being an active member of this community. I joined this highest, most holy rank. These men who had set themselves apart, created 623 rules and regulations that they should follow. They would look at the Israel, Israel, Israelites and they said, hey, if you want to know God, follow me. If you want to follow after the Lord, if you want to know Yahweh, look at my life. Paul says, I lived in that life. I wasn't just a participant in the, in the Jewish faith. I was an activist, man. I was a Pharisee. I wasn't, I'm not just an Aggie. I'm a yell leader. I'm going to go to all those games, even the wiffle ball tournaments or whatever. I'm going to wear overalls and scream at people. I'm going to do it. And sure enough, in my zeal for God, I persecuted the church. In other words, when I saw what I thought were heretics, when I saw this false teaching of this false Messiah, I stepped in and I took the punch. I mean, I, I got in there and I tried to take these people to task. I persecuted the church. I wasn't just a yell leader. I was a yell leader. I'd go punch other mascots. Because how dare they go to other colleges, right? Man, I, I persecuted this church and in all of these things, according to the righteousness stipulated in the law, I was blameless. Blameless. Man, I, I checked every box. I obeyed every law. I kept every commandment. 
And yet this is where I land. This is where it got me. All of these assets, all of these gains, all of these positives, all of these accomplishments, I've come to regard them as liabilities because of Christ. Now this is what's beautiful. Some translations will even say that, you know, they'll translate this as loss. They'll say regard it as loss. But, but the Greek term here is more powerful than that. Paul's using this term that describes something that's not just kind of a waste. It's not just kind of a lost. It's, it's something that's actively harmful. It's something that actually hinders you. It's something that's an actual disadvantage. Right? He's saying, look, I, I look back at these things that I've done, at these accomplishments that I have, at this pedigree that I come from. And he says, and when I look at it, I realize because of Christ, these other things can actually hold me back. That these other things can be a liability. They can hurt me. Why? Because, man, if you're caught up in living for your own victory, you are guaranteed defeat. If you're caught up in trying to earn the approval that you need, if you're caught up in, in, in earning the love of God, right standing before the Lord, if that is the life you're living, man, it, it's never going to satisfy. It's never going to end. It, you're always having to produce. right? You're always going to have to prove yourself. If you're a coach of a team, man, you're only as good as your last season. You have to prove yourself time and time and time again. If you're in a business, man, if you're, if you're a salesman, if you're working in the industry, man, you, you're only as good as your last quarter. You've got to make those numbers. You've got to hit those goals. You have to prove yourself time and time again. And the, the tragedy is that there's no end to that, right? There's no finish line. You can always look better or be better or, or sound better. You can always make more. Right? There's this famous quote from John D. Rockefeller, first American billionaire ever, probably the most wealthy American that's ever lived. Because back in the early 1900s, when he was kind of wheeling and dealing oil and all this industrial stuff, John D. Rockefeller became the first billionaire in America. This was in the early 1900s. Right? Early 1900s, if you worked like all day, you'd get like, a, a half penny. Like that's how they'd pay you. And maybe like a chicken. Like that was it. <laughs> Early 1900s, he made over a billion dollars. They estimate his current worth, it'd be about $326 billion. And so people would go to him and they were just like, what is your life? Like they just wanted to understand like how, what does that even do? Right? I've got a chicken, but a billion dollars. Like they just didn't understand. And so there's this famous moment where a reporter pulled him aside. They're like, hey, they're like, at what point was it enough, right? They're like, you've, you've obviously crossed every threshold of wealth we've ever imagined. But at what point was it? Like, what was the line? What was the number? What was the threshold that you crossed where it was enough? In other words, they asked him, how much wealth is enough to be satisfied? Right? Like, how much is enough? And he looked at him and he said, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Showed incredible self-awareness, recognizing, hey, you know what? When, you, when you're trying to think, yeah, I'm going to reach that point. I'm going to hit that number. I'm going to hit that goal. I want to reach that level of whatever physique that I'm working on, the relationship statuses that I'm working on, the, the whatever it is that I'm trying to amass for myself. When am I going to be fully satisfied? I'll just want to have a little bit more. Paul says, and if you're caught up in living for yourself, trying to live for your own victory, you're going to be defeated. Even in Christianity. 
right? Even some of us find ourselves in the church thinking, man, if I could just, if I could kick that one more sin, if I could, if I could get rid of that, that one habit, Oh man, if I could just care a little bit more about the, the, the social issues of our day, man, if I could just pray a little bit more, if I could wake up just a little bit earlier, if I could just read a little bit more scripture, man, if I could just get my kids to learn a little bit more about God or about the Bible, or man, if I could just have a little bit more of these relationships that I know are, man, just a little bit more accountability, a little bit more, whatever it might be. And we think to ourselves, man, that's what it's going to take. If I can just have a little bit more, then God's going to love me. Then God can accept me. Then suddenly I can have that forgiveness and that satisfaction that I, that I, need. And Paul's looking at us and he's saying, it's not working. He says, you can't base your satisfaction. You can't base your hope. You can't put your confidence in yourself. He says, it's not going to end well because it's never going to end. He says, it's, an, it's, a, it's a losing game. So that's why when I look at my life, when I look at these quote unquote assets, I see them as liabilities. When I look at these things, I regard all of them as liabilities compared to what? To the far greater value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. It says all of these things that I've done, it's nothing compared to knowing Christ. Which is significant because it's not even compared to pleasing Christ or serving Christ. Or living in, in accordance to the teachings of Christ. What is it? It's knowing Christ. Say it with me. The far greater value of what? Say it with me. Knowing Christ. Knowing him is our ultimate goal, is our ultimate aim. Knowing him, having relationship with Jesus Christ. The one who stepped out of heaven and onto earth to live and die and rise again for our sake. Knowing him, believing in who he is and what he's done. Knowing him, having relationship with him. That is the ultimate aim of our lives. And that's what's going to be the ultimate source of hope. It's the ultimate destination for our confidence. Paul says, this is why, this is the person I've, I've suffered the loss of all things. He says, right, I regard all of it as dung. I regard it as feces, as waste, that I may gain Christ. He says, I just don't even care about these other elements, about these other accomplishments, about these things on my resume compared to knowing Jesus Christ. He says, what I produce is worthless. In and of myself, I can do nothing of worth. And every once in a while, we have that moment of clarity. Every once in a while, we have those moments of self-awareness, of reflection, of recognizing that, yeah, it was while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. It was while we were still enemies of God. It was still while we were in open rebellion. We didn't reach this point of worthiness that God would step in and love us, that Jesus would come down and die for us. Every once in a while, we have moments of recognizing, you know what, yeah, in and of myself, I produce nothing. I'm dead. A couple months ago, my wife and I were putting our kids to bed. We have a three-year-old and a 10-month-old. And as we were putting everyone down Saturday night, I was preaching the next morning, trying to you know, make sure everything was in order. Uh, we put my daughter's going to sleep and three-year-old. And so we're, we're leaving, turn all the lights off. We go into her bathroom to turn the light off uh, and just hit by a wave destruction. Just this, oh. And we look around, we don't see anything, right? It smells like, the, it's like, it smells like death, like the death of hope. Like it's pretty much what it was. 
And there was, we saw nothing. So we're like, okay, I don't know what's going on. We'll just, we'll flush it. We'll move on. Flush the toilet. And water begins to just pour out of the bottom of it. Okay, so the base of the toilet, there was water just pouring out. Um, and I don't know how your toilets work. Mine generally don't do that, right? That's, that's not ideal, okay? And so we're like, okay, what's going on? We try to flush again. It's like still going. Like, oh. And so we get towels and we, turn, we just turn the water off. We're like, hey, we'll just, we'll come back to this later. We'll just, you know, we'll just, you know, it's okay. We've got another one in our bathroom. We'll just, we'll make do. And so we, you know, try to clean things up. And in the cleanup process, we take things to our bathroom, wringing it out, trying to, we flush uh, our toilet and the same thing. Water begins coming out the bottom, at the base, just streaming out the bottom of our toilet. Uh, and we say, okay, it's time to move. Uh, this place is clearly built on a cursed burial ground. We got to go. Like, we got to go. And in that moment, as we're kind of flipping out and looking at, you know, how we can put our house on the market, uh, I started Googling, okay, home care tips and how do you know what to do and what could be happening. And I stumbled across this idea that, well, there's, there's this thing called your sewer main. You have this main line under your house, uh, and it's, it, leave, it takes everything to the sewer, right? And so... Uh, Many times stuff will happen that will obstruct that pipe. So like roots will get in or the ground will shift. And so uh, when that happens, right, every, nothing works. And so uh, we, I, I called a plumber. I was going to leave a message, try to get him in you know, on Monday. But uh, amazingly, I call. It's like 10 p.m. on a Saturday night. And Greg answers. Greg, a local plumber, a man who I now love very dearly, uh, answered his phone. He's like, hey, what's going on? I'm Greg. What's going on? I was like, okay, well, uh, here's the thing. I was like, we got this issue. You know, describe it to him. He's like, okay, yeah, sounds like your main clogged. He's like, oh, I'm, I'm really sorry about this, but I, I don't think I can come tonight. Uh, I was like, Greg, please. <laughs> it's 10 p.m. on a Saturday. Like, no sadness needed. Like, I, I appreciate your heart. Again, I love you so dearly now. But he's like, I'm going to come out tomorrow morning. He's like, but in the meantime, the problem is, the reason I'm sorry I can't come out is he says, because you can't use any water until I come out there. I was like, Greg, bro, I got two little kids. Like, is there, it, I mean, I don't, can I use the hose? That's enough. You know, like whatever it takes, like spray bottles. I don't know. And he's like, okay. He's like, well, here's the thing. He says, you, it's like, there, there, there might be a way. There might be a way. I said, yeah. He says, in your yard, there's a pipe. There, or there might be a pipe, about four, five inches in diameter, PVC pipe. That's your overflow valve. It says, if you can find it, if you unscrew it, then it will allow all of the overflow to go into your yard instead of into your house. I said, okay, yeah. Susan, get the flashlight. And we went. And so we went outside and we searched. And sure enough, we found it. Thanks, George. Thanks, Greg. It worked. And suddenly we found ourselves with this beautiful release. However, the beauty of the release came with incredible pain and suffering. Because when I was stooped over that pipe, <laughs> getting that lid right off the top, stuff happened, all right? And, and I'll tell you, when I had that lid off, I was struck by the depravity of our world and the brokenness of our society. I realized in that moment, man, this is legitimately what I produce. Like, this is what my family does. This is what we make. This is what we put into the world. 
And the truth is that there are times in our lives where we have moments of sudden realization of, wow, this is what I produce. This is what I put into the world. I just said that thing. I just yelled at my kid. I just lashed out at my spouse. I just treated my coworker incredibly unfairly. I just had this moment of of thought that I can't believe I thought that thing. I can't believe I had that in my heart. I can't believe I had that in my mind. I can't believe I did those things. I look back at my life and I see these decisions. I can't can't believe I took that path. There are moments in our lives where we're free from distraction, where we're free from diversion, where we have these moments of clarity and we realize that the thing that we produce in this world is death. We look at our lives And we realize that we bring nothing of value in and of ourselves. That even our greatest attempts at at, at helping and healing and being kind, man, they are always even tinged with just an element of selfishness, pride. Even as we're consoling that friend, we're just grateful it wasn't us. Even as we're trying to to comfort our our, our loved one, we're just waiting to be done and move on. And we find ourselves in these moments of clarity, unscrewing that pipe and seeing ourselves for who we are. But what's incredible is that God saw us in that state and came to us anyway. It's not that he was fooled. It's not that he was delusional. Paul says, this is a realization that I've had. And this is a realization that we should all have. And it's something that God was very aware of. Says so that's why now we have to be make we have to make sure that we're found in Him, right? We need to know Christ and be found in Him, not because we have our own righteousness. I don't have my own righteousness derived from the law, but because I have the righteousness that comes by way of Christ's faithfulness. God saw us in the midst of that brokenness, of that depravity, of that stench, of that death, of that waste, and He says, "I'm going to live the life that you cannot live, and I'm going to die the death that you deserve, and you're going to find yourself relying not on your own." own ability, not on your own righteousness, not on your own faithfulness, but on the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. He who knew no sin took on our sin so that through his death, we can have life. In our lives, we just produce death, but through Christ's death, he produced life. And it's a free gift by grace through faith to all who believe. This is something that is given to us. It's something based on his life. And it's a beautiful thing. Paul says, that's the source of my hope. That's the destination of my confidence. It's not what I can do. It's what Christ has already done. I know I'm going to fail. So praise God that Christ was faithful. And yet we find ourselves time and again trying to prove ourselves. Either to others or to God. Paul says, you just got to stop. He says, my aim is to know him. And what's beautiful is that in knowing him, sure, is there, does God call us to obedience? Absolutely. 
Does he want to transform our hearts and our minds and and transform us more into the image of Christ? Absolutely. But Paul says, this isn't something that comes by way purely of your effort. He says, because if I know him, suddenly I am then placed, I'm now positioned to experience the power of his resurrection. I'm not earning the approval of God. I'm not earning his love. I'm just getting to experience it. And I get to share in his sufferings and to be like him in his death. Right? Jesus Christ promised his followers that they were going to suffer and be rejected and be scorned and die. He promises that. But he says, you know what? Not only are we united in that suffering and in that death, but somehow in knowing Jesus Christ, God has made a way for us to attain the resurrection from the dead. To be united not only with him in his suffering, but also in his glory. Paul says that is the aim and the purpose of our lives. Praise God. Praise God. That's why we praise the Lord in all circumstance, because we know that ultimately this is our hope. Not that we're going to somehow be better or do better or say better or think better. It's not somehow in the relationships are going to be perfect, that that salary is going to be just what we need, that we're going to have that quality of life or whatever it might be. He says the thing that where you, the place where you find your hope, is in the fact that while you were still sinners, Christ died for you. Is in the fact that if you know him, you can experience the power of his resurrection. But it's hard. It's so hard. We find ourselves time and time again. We don't necessarily have Judaizers knocking on our door, trying to pull us into that way of thought. But we still find ourselves tempted to think that we in and of ourselves can do it. That we can earn God's approval, that we can earn the approval of others, that we can just do those things and have those accomplishments and set those goals that are going to bring true satisfaction, that are worthy of our hope. The expectation that will always be met. That's why Paul says, hey, all of you, praise God, join together as a community, and keep each other accountable to this aim, to this goal, to this perspective. That's why we take communion. This morning, as we're gathered together, we're going to get to share in the observance of communion, the Lord's Supper, this beautiful symbol, this practice, this ordinance that God has given us, that Jesus himself gave his people, his followers. He says, hey, when you gather together, Pause and just think about what I've done, right? One of the reasons we take communion, it's not this mystical moment that saves us, that brings salvation, but it's this moment to just pause and reflect, to remember what's true. One of the reasons, one of the things we need to reflect on and remember is that Jesus Christ has done what we could not do, that we are saved by his work, not our own. So the men are going to be putting that together, going to be distributing that here in a moment. And I would just encourage you, as they're passing out these elements, as we're preparing as a, as a believing community to, to observe this moment, to pause in reflection, as they're passing those things out, take a moment and pray to God and ask him, God, show me, where is it that I'm still trying to prove myself? Maybe I'm still trying to prove myself to these certain people. Or I'm still trying to prove myself to you. I'm convincing myself that if I can reach this level of morality, if I can reach this level of holiness, if I can reach these levels and check these boxes, if I can have these accomplishments, then God, you'll love me. Ask the Lord to help you root out that falsehood. 
to bring to light where is it that you've bought into lies. Ask him to remind you that Jesus Christ, he's the reason we're here. So if you would take a moment, reflect on those things as they're passing out the elements. Uh, To the church in Corinth, uh, Paul is telling them about the Lord's Supper and telling them about communion. And uh, he tells them that I received this from the Lord, uh, what I also passed on to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And after he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So do this every time you drink it in remembrance of me. Paul goes on to explain that every time you eat this bread, right, this this symbolic body of Christ, every time you drink this cup, the symbolic blood of Christ, because every time you pause and remember what he's done, the, the, the life that he sacrificed, the death that he went through, the suffering that he endured, he says, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Until he returns. When we pause and remember what Christ has done, it should remind us and encourage us and motivate us to quit living for our own victory. To quit basing our hopes and expectations based on who we are and what we can accomplish. But to praise God for the hope that he's given us. For the life and the death and the resurrection that Christ has accomplished. So as we sing one more song in worship, I would love for us to just pause and pray and ask God to send us forth with that new motivation. God, we thank you that you've given us, Lord, this beautiful moment of remembrance, this reflection. So God, we pray that as we move forward in this new year with new dreams and new goals and new expectations, God, we pray that we would keep our hope in you. That, God, we would choose to praise in every circumstance that we would maintain that perspective that Christ has gone before us. That we're your children by faith and nothing else. And if you would take a moment right now and ask that God would bring to your mind someone you know needs to hear that truth. A co-worker, friend, spouse, child. Ask God that he would Just bring to your thoughts someone that you could witness to. Someone who needs to hear this beautiful truth that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Ask him to bring that person to mind right now.